0: Chapter 4 The Nature of True Repentance, Part 2. Ingredient 4 Shame for Sin. The fourth ingredient in repentance is shame, that they will be ashamed of their wrongdoings. Ezekiel 43, verse 10. Blushing is the color of virtue. When the heart has been made black with sin, grace makes the face red with blushing. I am ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, Ezra 9, verse 6. The repenting prodigal was so ashamed of his excess that he did not think he was worthy to be called a son any more, Luke 15, verse 21. Repentance causes a holy shame. If Christ's blood was not in the sinner's heart, there would not be so much blood to brush to the face there are nine considerations about sin that may cause shame. 1. Every sin makes us guilty, and guilt usually breeds shame. Adam never blushed in the time of innocence. As long as his heart was as white as a lily, he had no need to blush like a rose. But when his soul was deflowered by sin, then he was ashamed. Sin has tainted our blood. We are guilty of high treason against the crown of heaven. This may cause a holy modesty and blushing. 2. In every sin there is much ingratitude, and that is a matter of shame. He who is scolded for ingratitude should blush. We have sinned against God when He has given us no reason. What injustice did your fathers find in me? Jeremiah 2 verse 5 how has God wearied us, except by the greatness of His mercy. Oh, the blessings that have fallen on us! We have had the finest of the wheat. We have been fed with angels' food. The golden oil of divine blessing has run down on us from the head of our heavenly priest. And yet we abuse the kindness of so good a God. This should make us ashamed. Julius Caesar was especially pained when Brutus, on whom he had bestowed so many favors, came to stab him. What? Thou, my son, Brutus? How ungrateful to give back evil after such mercy! Ilion reports that the vulture is made sick by perfumes. To contract the illness of pride and luxury from the perfume of God's mercy, what a shame to return evil for good to kick against the one who feeds us. Deuteronomy 32, verse 15. To make an arrow of God's mercies and shoot at Him, to wound Him with His own blessing, such horrid ingratitude. Will not this dye our faces a deep scarlet? Ingratitude is a sin so great that God Himself stands amazed at it. Listen, heavens, and hear, earth. Sons, I have raised and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Isaiah one verse two. Three, sin has made us naked, and that may breed shame. Sin has stripped us of our white linen of holiness, and has made us naked and deformed in God's sight, which may cause blushing. When Hanan had abused David's servants and cut off their garments so that their nakedness was exposed. The text says, The men were extremely humiliated, Second Samuel 10, verse 5. 4. Our sins have put Christ to shame, and should not we be ashamed of this? The Jews dressed him in purple, they put a reed in his hand, spit in his face, and in his greatest agonies they mocked and hated him. Here was the shame of the cross, and the shame is magnified when we consider His greatness. He was the Lamb of God. If our sins put Christ to shame, should they not put us to shame as well? If He wore the purple, should our cheeks not wear crimson? The sun itself blushed at the shame of Christ's death and hid itself in an eclipse. How can we see this and not blush with shame as well? 5. Many of the sins we commit are due to special prodding from the devil, and should not this cause shame? The devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ, John 13, verse 2. He filled Ananias's heart and encouraged him to lie, Acts 5, verse 3. He often stirs up our passions, James 3, verse 6. Now, in the same way that it is a shame to bring forth a child illegitimately, so, too, it is a shame to bring forth sins that were fathered by the devil himself. It is said that the Virgin Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke 1 verse 35, but we often conceive by the power of Satan. When the heart conceives pride, lust, and malice, it is very often by the power of the devil. Should this not make us ashamed, to think that many of our sins are committed in fornication with the old serpent? 6. Sin, like Kirky's enchanting cup, turns men into animals. Psalm 49, verse 12. And is that not a matter for shame? Sinners are compared to foxes. Luke 13, verse 32. To wolves. Matthew 7, verse 15. To donkeys. Job 11, verse 12, and to pigs, 2 Peter 2, verse 22. A sinner is a pig with a man's head. He who was once just a little less than the angels in dignity has now become like the beasts. Grace in this life does not fully obliterate this brutish temper. Augur, that good man, cried out, I am certainly more stupid than any man, Proverbs 30, verse 2 but common sinners are in a way fully animalized. They do not act rationally, but are carried away by the force of their lusts and passions. Does it not make us ashamed to be so degenerate as to be subhuman? Our sins have taken away the noble spirit we once had. The crown has fallen from our head. God's image is defaced. Reason is eclipsed. Conscience is dulled. We have more of the brute in us than of the angel. 7. In every sin there is folly. Jeremiah 4, verse 22. A man will be ashamed of his foolishness. Is he not a fool who labors more for the bread that spoils than for the bread of life? Is he not a fool who for a lust or a whim will lose heaven, like Tiberius, who for one drink forfeited his kingdom? Is he not a fool who to protect his body will injure his soul? Would a man let his arm or head be cut off to save his jacket? Is he not a fool who will believe a temptation before a promise? Is he not a fool who cares about his entertainment more than his salvation? How may this make men ashamed to think that they inherit not land, but foolishness? Proverbs 14, 8. It should make us blush that the sins we commit as Christians are far worse than the sins of non-Christians. As Christians we have stepped out of darkness and into light. We have been gifted the treasures of God's wisdom. The sin committed by a Christian is worse than the same sin committed by a non-Christian, because the Christian sins against clearer conviction. Nine our sins are worse than the sins of the devils. The lapsed angels never sinned against Christ's blood. Christ did not die for them. The medicine of His merit was never intended to heal them, but we have insulted and disparaged His blood with our unbelief. The devils never sinned against God's patience. As soon as they turned against God, they were damned. God never waited for the angels, but we have tried and tested God's patience. He has pitied our weakness and tolerated our disrespect. His spirit has been repulsed, yet He has still pleaded with us and will accept no denial. Our conduct has been so frustrating that it would tire the patience not only of a Moses, but also of all the angels. We have put God through it. And made him tired of relenting. Jeremiah 15, verse 6. The devils followed no one's example when they sinned. They were the first who sinned and were made the first example. But we have seen examples of sin. We have seen the angels, those morning stars, fall from their glorious place. We have seen the old world drowned, Sodom burned. And yet we have gone out and sinned. How desperate is the thief who steals in the very place where his partner hangs in chains! And surely, if we have out sinned the devils, it should make us blush. Use 1. Is shame an ingredient of repentance? If so, then those who have no shame are very far from repentance. Many have sinned away shame. The criminal knows no shame. Zephaniah 3, verse 5. It is a great shame not to be ashamed. The Lord sets it as a brand upon the Jews. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They were not ashamed at all, nor did they know even how to be ashamed. Jeremiah 6, verse 15. The devil has stolen shame from men. When one of the persecutors in Queen Mary's time was criticized because of his bloody violence against the martyrs, he replied, I see nothing to be ashamed of. Many are no more ashamed of their sin than King Nebuchadnezzar was of his being sent out to eat grass. When men have hearts of stone and foreheads of brass, it is a sign that the devil has taken full possession of them. There is no creature capable of shame but man. The brute beasts are capable of fear and pain, but not of shame. You cannot make a beast blush. Those who cannot blush for sin are too much like the beasts. There are some who are so far from this holy blushing that they are proud of their sins. Men are proud of their long hair. These are the devil's Nazarites, Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? 1 Corinthians 11 verse 14. It confounds the distinction of the sexes. Others are proud of their black spots, and what if God should turn them into blue spots? Others are so far from being ashamed of sin that they glory in their sins. Whose glory is in their shame? Philippians 3 verse 19. Some are ashamed of that which is their glory. For instance, they are ashamed to be seen with a good book in their hand. Others glory in that which is their shame. They look on sin as an example of bravery or daring. The swearer finds his speech most graceful when it is interlaced with curses. The drunkard considers it a point of pride that he can hold his drink. Isaiah 5 verse 22, But when men are cast into a fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter by the breath of the Almighty, then let them boast of sin as they see fit. Use 2. Let us show our repentance by a modest blushing. My God, I am ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face, Ezra 9, verse 6. My God, there was faith. I am ashamed. There was repentance. Hypocrites will confidently confess God to be their God, but they do not know how to blush. Let us take on ourselves a holy shame for sin. Be assured, the more we are ashamed of sin now, the less we will be ashamed at Christ's coming. If the sins of the godly are mentioned at the day of judgment, it will not be to shame them. But to magnify the riches of God's grace in pardoning them, indeed the wicked will be ashamed on the last day; they will sneak away and hang their heads down. But the saints will have no spot or wrinkle, Ephesians 5:27, and so will be without shame. Therefore, they are encouraged to lift up their heads, Luke 21:28. Ingredient 5 Hatred of Sin The fifth ingredient in repentance is hatred of sin. The schoolmen distinguished a twofold hatred hatred of abominations and hatred of hostility. First, there is a hatred or loathing of abominations. You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your wrongdoings and your abominations. Ezekiel 36 verse 31 A true penitent loathes sin. If a man hates that which makes his stomach sick, how much more will he hate that which makes his conscience sick? Loathing of sin takes more than just leaving sin behind. One may abandon sin because of fear, as in a storm the heavy armor and jewels are cast overboard but the loathing of sin includes a detestation of it. Christ is never loved until sin is loathed. Heaven is never longed for until sin is loathed. When the soul sees a stream of blood running, he cries out, Lord, when will I be freed from this body of death? When will I put off these filthy garments of sin and have the headdress of glory placed on my head? Let all my self-love be turned into self-loathing, Zechariah 3, verses 4-5. through We are never more precious in God's eyes than when we are lepers in our own. Second, there is a hatred of enmity. There is no better way to discover life than by motion. The eye moves, the pulse beats. So, to discover repentance, there is no better sign than by a holy antipathy against sin. Hatred, said Cicero, is anger boiled down into determination. Sound repentance begins in the love of God and ends in the hatred of sin. How May True Hatred of Sin Be Known? 1. When a man's spirit is set against sin, Not only does the tongue rail against sin, but also the heart abhors it, so that however eye-catching sin may appear to be, we find it hideous, in the same way we abhor the picture of one whom we mortally hate, even though it may be well drawn. I love not thee, Sabidi. A dish might be finely cooked, and the sauce good, but if a man dislikes the meat in the dish... He will not even try it. In the same way, let the devil cook and garnish sin with pleasure and profit, but a true penitent with a secret hatred of it is disgusted by it and will not go near it. 2. True Hatred of Sin is Universal True hatred of sin is universal in two ways, with respect to the mind and to the object. Hatred is universal in all aspects of the mind. That is, there is a dislike of sin not only in the judgment, but also in the will and affections. Many people are convinced that sin is a vile thing and in judgment have an aversion to it, but they still taste sweetness and have a secret pride in it. They dislike sin in judgment, but they embrace it in their affections. But in true repentance the hatred of sin is in all parts of the self, not only in the intellectual part, but especially also in the will. I do the very thing I hate Paul was perhaps not entirely free from sin, yet his will was against it. Hatred is also universal with respect to the object. He who hates one sin hates all sin. Aristotle said that hatred is against the whole kind. He who hates a serpent hates all serpents. I hate every false way, Psalm 119, verse 104. Hypocrites will hate some sins that damage their reputations, but a true convert hates all sins, even the very stirrings of corruption. Paul hated the motions of sin, Romans 7, verse 23. 3. True hatred against sin is against sin in all forms. A holy heart detests sin for its intrinsic pollution. Sin leaves a stain upon the soul. A regenerate person hates sin not only because of its effects, but also because it is a deadly plague. He hates this serpent not only for its sting, but also for its poison. He hates sin not only because of hell, but also because it is hell. 4. True Hatred Is Unyielding It will never be reconciled to sin. Anger may be reconciled, but hatred cannot. Sin is the enemy that will never be taken into favor again. The war between a child of God and sin is like the war between those two princes. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually, 1 Kings 14, verse 30. 5. Where there is a real hatred, we not only oppose sin in ourselves, but in others too. The church at Ephesus could not bear with those who were evil, Revelation 2, verse 2. Paul sharply criticized Peter for the hypocrisy he displayed though he was an apostle. Christ in a holy displeasure whipped the money changers out of the temple John 2 verse 15 He would not allow the temple to be made into a marketplace Nehemiah rebuked the nobles for charging interest Nehemiah 5 verse 7 and profaning the sabbath Nehemiah 13 verse 17 A sin hater will not tolerate wickedness in his family one who practices deceit Shall not dwell within my house. Psalm 101, verse 7. What a shame it is when judges and officials can show strong feelings when they are angry, but show no heroic spirit in the interest of suppressing vice. Those who have no hatred against sin are strangers to repentance. Sin is in them as poison is in a serpent. The serpent loves its own venom as a natural part of itself. How far from repentance are those who, instead of hating sin, love sin. To the godly, sin is like a thorn in the eye. To the wicked, it is like a crown on the head. When thou dost evil, thou rejoicest. Jeremiah 11 verse 15 KJV Loving sin is worse than committing it. A good man may run into a sinful action accidentally, but to love sin is hopeless. A pig loves to tumble in the mud. A devil loves that which opposes God. To love sin shows that the will is choosing sin, and the more of the will there is in a sin, the greater the sin. Willful sin cannot be purged by sacrifice. Hebrews 10 verse 26 How many there are who love the forbidden fruit? They love their curses and adulteries. They love the sin and hate the punishment. Solomon speaks of a generation of men, Insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3 For men to love sin, to hug that which will be their death, to play with damnation, insanity is in their hearts. It persuades us to show our repentance by a bitter hatred of sin there is a deadly grudge between the scorpion and the crocodile. It should be the same between the heart and sin. Question. What is there in sin that should make a penitent hate it? Answer. Sin is the cursed thing, the most misshapen monster. The apostle Paul uses a very emphatic word to express it, that sin would become utterly sinful. Romans 7 verse 13, or as it is in Greek, hyperbolically sinful. The fact that sin is an extreme mischief and deserves hatred will become clear if we look at sin as a fourfold concept. First, look at the origin of sin, where it comes from. It gets its pedigree from hell. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 1 John 3, verse 8. Sin is the devil's own work. God has a hand in ordering sin, it is true, but Satan has a hand in acting it out. How hateful it is to be doing that which is the specific work of the devil, indeed, that which makes men devils. Second, look at sin in its nature, and it will appear very hateful see how Scripture has laid it out. It is a dishonoring of God, Romans 2, verse 23, a despising of God, First Samuel 2, verse 30, a cause of unrest to God, Ezekiel 16, verse 43, a trying of God's patience, Isaiah 7, verse 13, and a breaking of God's heart. As a loving husband, Broken by the unfaithful conduct of his wife. I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts. Ezekiel 6, verse 9. Sin, when acted out fully, is crucifying Christ all over again, and putting him to open shame. Hebrews 6, verse 6. Impudent sinners pierce Christ by hurting his saints, and if he were now on earth, they would crucify him again. Behold, the ugly nature of sin. Third, look at sin in its comparison, and it appears ghastly. Compare sin with suffering and hell, and it is worse than both. It is worse than suffering, whether it be sickness, poverty, or death. There is more malignancy in a drop of sin than in a sea of suffering, for sin is the cause of suffering. And the cause is more than the effect. The sword of God's justice sits quiet in the scabbard until sin draws it out. Suffering is good for us. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 71. Distress leads to repentance. Second Chronicles 33, verse 12. The viper, being struck, spits out its poison. In the same way, when God's rod strikes us, we spit away the poison of sin. Suffering improves our grace. Gold is purest, and juniper is sweetest in the fire. Discipline prevents condemnation. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. Therefore, Maurice the emperor prayed to God to punish him in this life, so that he might not be punished in the next. So suffering is for our good in many ways but there is no good in sin Manasseh's affliction brought him to humiliation but Judas's sin brought him to desperation Suffering only reaches the body but sin goes further it poisons the imagination and disorders the affections Affliction is only corrective sin is destructive Affliction can only take away the life. Sin takes away the soul. Luke 12, verse 20. A man who is afflicted may find that his conscience is quiet. When the ark was tossed on the waves, Noah could sing in the ark. When the body is suffering, a Christian can make melody with his heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5, verse 19. But when a man commits sin his conscience is terrified witness spira who upon renouncing the faith said he thought that even the souls in hell did not feel the internal torments he endured in painful discipline one is receiving the love of god revelation 3 verse 19 if one man should throw a bag of money at another and in throwing it should hurt him a little and cause a bruise he will not take offense, but will look upon it as a result of love. In the same way, when God bruises us with affliction, it is to enrich us with the golden graces and comforts of His Spirit. All is in love. But when we commit sin, God withdraws His love. When David sinned, he felt nothing but displeasure from God. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Psalm 97, verse 2. David could see no rainbow, no sunbeam, nothing but clouds and darkness around God's face. The fact that sin is worse than affliction is evident, because the greatest judgment God lays on a man in this life is to allow him to sin without control. When the Lord is most severely displeased with a person, he does not say, I will bring the sword and the plague on this man. He says, I will let him sin on. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart. Psalm 81, verse 12. Now, if the giving up of a man to his sins is, in God's own opinion, the most dreadful evil, then sin is far worse than affliction. And if it is so, then we should truly hate it. Compare sin with hell, and you will see that sin is worse. Hell is a place of torment. Yet nothing there is as bad as sin. Hell is of God's making, but sin is not of His making. Sin is the devil's creature. The torments of hell are a burden only to the sinner, but sin is a burden to God. I am weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Amos 2 verse 13. In the torments of hell there is something that is good, the execution of divine justice. There is justice to be found in hell, but sin is a piece of the highest injustice. Sin robs God of His glory, Christ of His purchase, and the soul of its happiness. Judge, then, if sin is not the most hateful thing worse than affliction or hell. Fourth, look at sin and its consequences, and it will appear hateful. Sin reaches the body and exposes it to a variety of miseries. We come into the world with a cry and go out with a groan. It made the Thracians weep on their children's birthday, as Herodotus tells us, to consider the calamities they would experience in the world. Sin is the Trojan horse out of which comes a whole army of troubles. I do not need to name them because almost everyone feels them. While we suck the honey, we are pricked with the briar. Sin gives a dash of warmth like wine, and at the same time it digs our grave. Romans 5 verse 12. Sin reaches the soul. In sin we have lost the image of God, the source of both our sanctity and our majesty. Adam, in his pristine glory, was like a herald wearing his uniform of the kingdom. All respect him because he carries the king's coat of arms, but pull this coat off, and no man even notices him. Sin has done this disgrace to us. It has plucked off our coat of innocence. But that is not all. This arrow of sin aims to strike even deeper. Sin wants to forever separate us from the beautiful vision of God, in whose presence is fullness of joy. If sin is so extremely sinful, it should make us angry and stir up our steadfast indignation against it. As Amnon's hatred of Tamar was greater than the love with which he had loved her, Second Samuel 13, verse 15, so we should hate sin infinitely more than we ever loved it. Ingredient number six, turning from sin. The sixth ingredient in repentance is a turning from sin. Reformed behavior brings up the rear in the line toward repentance. What difference would it make if one could, with Niobe, weep himself into a stone, if he did not weep out sin? True repentance, like nitric acid, eats through the iron chain of sin. Therefore, weeping and turning are put together. Joel 2, verse 12. After the cloud of sorrow has rained down tears, the sky of the soul is clearer. Repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. Ezekiel 14, verse 6. This turning from sin is called an abandoning of sin. Isaiah 55, verse 7. As a man abandons the company of a thief or sorcerer. It is called a putting of sin far away. Job 11, verse 14. Paul put away the viper and shook it into the fire. Acts 28, verse 5. Dying to sin is the life of repentance. The very day a Christian turns from sin, he must require of himself a perpetual fast. The eye must fast from impure glances, the ear must fast from listening to slander, the tongue must fast from cursing, the hands must fast from bribes, the feet must fast from unclean paths, and the soul must fast from the love of wickedness. This turning from sin implies a noticeable change. There is a change made in the heart the heart of stone has become a heart of flesh. Satan wanted to have Christ prove his deity by turning stones into bread, but Christ has worked a far greater miracle in making stones become flesh. In repentance, Christ turns a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. There is a change made in the life. Turning from sin is so visible that others can see it. Therefore, it is called a change from darkness to light. Ephesians 5 verse 8. Paul, after he had seen the heavenly vision, was so transformed that all men wondered at the change. Acts 9 verse 21. Repentance turned the jailer into a nurse and physician. Acts 16 verse 33. He took the apostles from jail and into his own home washed their wounds, and set food before them. A ship was going eastward, there came a wind that turned it westward. Likewise, a man was turning toward hell before the contrary wind of the Spirit blew, turned his course, and caused him to sail toward heaven. Chrysostom, speaking of the Ninevites' repentance, said that if a stranger who had seen Nineveh's excess had gone into the city after they repented, he would barely have believed it was the same city because it was so transformed. Repentance makes such a visible change in a person that it is as if another soul took up residence in the same body. For the turning from sin to be genuine, these few things are required. 1. It must be a turning from sin with the heart. The heart is the first thing that lives, and it must be the first thing that turns. The heart is that which the devil works hardest to gain. Never did he work so hard to capture the body of Moses as he does to capture the heart of man. In religion, the heart is everything. If the heart is not turned from sin, it is no better than a lie. Her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception. Jeremiah 3 verse 10, or as in Hebrew, in a lie. Judah did make a show of reformation. She was not as horribly idolatrous as the ten tribes of Israel. Yet Judah is worse than Israel. She is called treacherous Judah. She pretended to be changed, but it was not true. Her heart was not for God. She did not turn with her whole heart. It is offensive to make a show of turning from sin while the heart is still in league with it. I have read of one of our Saxon kings who was baptized, who in the same church had one altar for the Christian religion and another for a pagan one. God requires that the whole heart be turned from sin. True repentance must have nothing held back. Two, it must be a turning from all sin. Let the wicked abandon his way, Isaiah fifty-five verse seven. A real penitent turns off the road of sin; every sin is abandoned. As Jehu ordered all the priests of Baal slain, Second Kings ten verse twenty-four, not one must escape so a true convert seeks the destruction of every lust. He knows how dangerous it is to entertain even one sin. He who hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown, and he who indulges one sin is a traitorous hypocrite. 3. It must be a turning from sin on spiritual grounds. It is possible to refrain from the acts of sin, but still not turn from sin in a right manner. Acts of sin may be restrained out of fear, or for practical reasons, but a true penitent turns from sin out of religious principle, namely, love of God. Even if sin did not bear such bitter fruit, if death did not grow on this tree, a gracious soul would forsake it. Out of love for God. This is the most tender turning from sin. When things are frozen and congealed, the best way to separate them is by fire. When men and their sins are congealed together, the best way to separate them is by the fire of love. Three men, asking one another what made them leave sin, one says, I think of the joys of heaven. Another, I think of the torments of hell. But the third, I think of the love of God, and that makes me forsake it. How could I offend the God of love? Number 4. Turning from sin must turn us toward God. This is in the text, that they are to repent and turn to God. Acts 26 verse 20. Turning from sin is like pulling the arrow out of a wound. Turning to God is like pouring in the balm. We read in Scripture about a repentance from dead works, Hebrews 6, verse 1, and a repentance toward God, Acts 20, verse 21. Deceptive hearts pretend to leave old sins, but they do not turn to God or embrace serving Him. It is not enough to walk out of the devil's camp. We must get under Christ's banner and wear his colors. The repenting prodigal not only left his debauchery, but he also arose and went to his father. It was God's complaint. They return, but not to the Most High. In true repentance, the heart points directly to God. Like a compass needled to the North Pole. Number 5. True turning from sin has no return. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? Hosea 14, verse 8. Forsaking sin must be like leaving one's native land, never to return. Some have seemed to be converts and who have turned from sin, but later they have returned to their sins again. This is a returning to foolishness. Psalm 85, verse 8. It is a dreadful sin, for it is against God's clear light. One would suppose that one who has left his sin felt it bitterly in the pangs of conscience, yet he returned to it again. Therefore, he sins against what the Spirit of God has shown him. Such a return to sin brings disgrace to God. What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? Jeremiah two verse five. He who returns to his sin implies that God has done some evil. If a man divorces his wife, it implies that he knows she has done something wrong. To leave God and turn to sin is to quietly slander the deity. God who hates divorce. Malachi 2, verse 16, hates that Christians would divorce themselves from him. To return to sin gives the devil more power over a man than ever. When a man turns from sin, the devil seems to be cast out of him. But when he returns to sin, the devil comes into his house again and takes possession, and the last condition of that person becomes worse than the first. Matthew 12 verse 45 When a prisoner has broken out of prison and the jailer catches him again, he will bind him with stronger chains. He who turns from a habit of sinning, as it were, breaks out of the devil's prison. But if Satan catches him returning to sin, he will hold him tighter and take fuller possession of him than ever. Be mindful of this, a true turning from sin means divorcing it so as never to come near it again. Whoever is turned from sin this way is a blessed person. God raised up His servant for you first and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Acts 3 verse 26. Use 1. Is turning from sin a necessary ingredient in repentance? If so, then there is little repentance to be found. People are not turned from their sins, they are still the same as they were. They were proud, and they still are. Like the beasts in Noah's ark, they went into the ark unclean and came out unclean. Men come to the law impure and go away impure though men have seen so many changes on the outside, still there is no change worked on the inside. The people do not turn back to him who struck them. Isaiah 9 verse 13. If people do not turn away from sin, how can they say they repent? Can they have been washed in the Jordan if they still have their leprosy on their forehead? Might God not say to the unreformed, as he once said to Ephraim? Ephraim is allied with idols. Leave him alone. Hosea 4.17. In the same way, here is a man allied with his drunkenness and uncleanness. Leave him alone. Let him go on in sin. But if there is either justice in heaven or vengeance in hell, he will not go unpunished. Use number two it admonishes those who are only half-turned. And who are these? The ones who turn in their judgment but not in their practice. They cannot help but acknowledge that sin has a bad influence and will weep for sin, but they are so bewitched by it that they have no power to leave it. Their corruptions are stronger than their convictions. These are half-turned Almost Christians. Acts 26, verse 28. They are like Ephraim, who was a cake baked on one side, but was still dough on the other. Hosea 7, verse 8. People are only half turned if they turn only from blatant sin, but have no intrinsic work of grace. They may be well behaved, but they do not prize Christ or love holiness. These well behaved people are like Jonah. He got a gourd to defend him from the heat of the sun, and thought that he was safe. But then a worm came and devoured the gourd. Similarly, men, when they turn from blatant sin, think their good behavior will be a gourd to defend them from the wrath of God. But at death there arises the worm of conscience, which knocks away this gourd and then their hearts fail, and they begin to despair. People are only half turned if they turn from many sins, but do not turn away from some special sin. There is a certain sinful pleasure they cherish and will not let go. It is like a man who is cured of several diseases, but has a cancer in his heart, which kills him. It admonishes those whose repentance is as good as no repentance at all, who expel one devil just to welcome another. They turn from swearing to slandering, from excess to covetousness, like a sick man who goes from having a cold to having malaria. This kind of turning from sin will turn men to hell. Use number three. Let us show that we are repentant by turning from sin to God. There are some people I have little hope of succeeding with. Let the trumpet of the word sound so loudly. Let threats of damnation be thundered out against them. Let some flashes of hellfire be thrown in their faces, but still they will hold on to their sin. These people seem to be like the herd of pigs in the Gospels carried down by the devil violently into the sea. They would rather be damned than change. They hold on to deceit. They refuse to return. Jeremiah 8 verse 5. But if there is any sincerity or sobriety in us, if our consciences are not cast into a deep sleep, let us listen to the voice of the one who calls to us and turn to God, our supreme good. How often does God call upon us to turn to Him? He swears, As I live, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from His way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God would rather have our repenting tears than our blood. Turning to God is for our profit. Our repentance is of no benefit to God, but to ourselves. If a man drinks from a fountain, he benefits himself, not the fountain. If he beholds the light of the sun, he himself is refreshed by it, not the sun. If we turn from our sins to God, God is not helped by it. It is only we ourselves who reap the benefit. If nothing else, Self love and self interest should win us over. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. Proverbs 9, verse 12. If we turn to God, He will turn to us. He will turn His anger from us and His face to us. It was David's prayer Turn to me and be gracious to me. Psalm 86, verse 16. Our turning will make God turn. Return to me, declares the Lord of armies, that I may return to you. Zechariah 1 verse 3. He who was an enemy will turn and be our friend. If God turns to us, the angels are turned to us. We will have their protection. Psalm 91 verse 11. If God turns to us, then all things will turn to our good, both in mercies and in affliction. We will taste honey at the end of the rod of discipline. So now we have seen the several ingredients of repentance.